Um, Father, um, we're grateful, Lord, to be in your house of worship, grateful to be with brothers and sisters in Christ, to worship freely, to praise our Lord Jesus Christ, and to really dig into the word and, and see what you have to guide us. So I pray, Lord, this morning as um, we hear the word that these are, this is the Holy Spirit, this is God's word, this is nothing to do with uh, my take or my spin. This is this is the Holy Spirit speaking to us. So thank you, Lord, for being in this place this morning, and just pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts to hear what you would have us um, learn. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So for the past um, number of weeks, we've been going through the book of James, and um, wanted to kind of tie up some some of the things that we've been talking about in there. So James is. The, who's the half-brother of Jesus, uh, wrote an epistle that gives a lot of fantastic instructions about you know, the Christian life, how we ought to live, how we ought to look at things, how we ought to observe and interact with the world, about what we do when we go through various trials, um, how we are to act towards one another, how we don't show favoritism, how we, uh, how we uh, engage and work with people on all levels and all uh, strata of life, um, how, how we control our tongue, how we control our actions, all these things um, that James wrote about. So um, I've been kind of reading through the first book of Peter. And Peter, we're going to this morning go through 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And the reason I kind of chose that to talk about this morning is it's as if Peter took the book of James and wrote a brief prescription and says, here, take one of these for eternity. And this really kind of distills out a lot of what we're talking about and how, how James and Peter are sort of guiding the Christian life and would, would have us look at things. So Peter is addressing um, a variety of people. He's, if, if, you look at the, if you were to read through Peter, you'd understand he's addressing the aliens and the exiles, the folks that are scattered and living as strangers all over the regions of Asia Minor. Um, these are folks that were the Roman world as persecuting followers of Christ, both Gentiles and Jews. Um, and their Emperor Nero, who was not a nice guy, is just getting started in his brutal uh, conquest of the Christians. So these are folks of the day who are living out their faith, but they're yearning for something beyond what the ordinary world has to offer. So let's just t- take a look at the scripture that we want to read through this morning. Uh, this is verses 7 through 11. He, he writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded or sober and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully ministering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength of God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. That's really some powerful scripture. It's convicting because... um, of some of the things that he writes there about when we speak, uh, how we should perceive what our speech is about. Um, so let's take a look at, uh, it was kind of break this down a little bit, and there are some challenges here for me 
um, as I try to put this together. So the end of all things is near. Uh, this is an interesting one. Um, if you were to read the scholars and the theologians about the end of all things, you would get a variety of opinions. Uh, many commentators and scholars generally consider that Peter was writing about the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of the Jewish commonwealth, city, temple, and worship. And these are all things that are within the scope of Peter's knowledge and understanding for the day. It, it may or may not be talking about the end of the age, um, but a lot of folks did not take it literally to mean to the end of the world. So the end of, the, the end of all things, if you are a person who is facing... Uh, certain death, if you are struggling through an illness or something like that, the end of all things is certainly near. So uh, Peter is telling us to be uh, clear-minded and self-controlled. Um, the consummation of all things, which may be said to be at the hand in the sense of, if you think about what, what Jesus was talking about in, in Revelation, he's really talking about the end of the age. So we're just talking about... Um, Maybe not things quite so globally. Um, so the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded, sober, and self-controlled so that you can pray. So here's the bottom line. If we look at James 4.13, uh, looking at our lives at the end of all things, our lives are but a vapor, and we should be preparing for eternal things. James 4.13.17 says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to do this or that, uh, we'll go do this or that in whatever city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why would you do uh, what you, why you do not know what will even happen tomorrow? What is your life? Sorry about twisting over my words here. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. So what he's saying is that your life, however, you know, when we're younger, we think we got forever to, to live as we get older and a little bit more long in the tooth and more road behind us and less road ahead of us. We understand that life is really a short commodity. And how ought we to be living? So that when he says be clear-minded, sober, I also found in some of my study the word uh, temperate, and he, what, what he's really saying is look before you and provide for eternity. So um, the clear-minded and self-controlled are things that we do to live under the Christian life, um, but why do we do all that? In this particular verse, it says be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Does everybody get that? That's really cool. Um, we think about being tempered, self-controlled, uh, and sober-minded, but do we do it in the context of so that we can eliminate all these distractions in our life and pray? Um, the Bible has a few things to say about prayer, just a few, right? One of the things that I read says uh, in a commentary said, desires of all kinds above all those of man's lower nature are fatal to the energy and therefore to the efficacy of prayer. I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I pray. I, so, when I was a kid, I thought that you had to have your prayer dialed in just right. You know, you had, to, you had to think it way out beforehand. You couldn't pray in certain places, certainly not your car or your garage or your whatever. You had to go to a special place 
Because if you don't go to a special place, God's not going to hear your prayer. And then you had to have the grammar right, you know? You had to, things just had to be out. And if you ended your sentence with a preposition, my God's not going to hear that, right? (laughs) So prayer, when I was a kid, when I was a lot younger, was a very difficult thing for me. And I thought, I got to pray just right. Because if I don't, God's not going to hear what I have to say. Um, And when you pray, you know, know, how do you you pray? James 1 through 6 says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. When we pray, do we really believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do? Do we really believe that God answers prayer? Do we really believe that God is in the equation? Example I'm going to use is um, my wife and I had a Bible study for uh, a home group for years, and we had a a gentleman who was part of our group who has, had been separated from his wife. They had, for two years, had been going to separate churches and kind of living separately and looking towards reconciliation. We prayed diligently for this marriage to be reconciled. And somewhere in there, I had this doubt in my mind that when I was praying that this was actually going to be something that happened. And after two years... This gentleman and his wife were reconciled. Their marriage was restored, and they both attended our home group for a number of years, and they started a ministry to people who were going through the same thing that they went through. I was praying with doubt, and I was really convicted, and I went to this gentleman. I went to him and his wife, and I apologized. I said, I prayed all this time not believing that God was going to restore your marriage. God can redeem anything. He can redeem anybody, and he can redeem any situation. So when we're praying, do we pray for a, with a heart and an attitude that we believe that God understands and hears our prayers, and do we really believe what we're praying for and that God can do those things that we're praying about? Timothy 2, uh, verses 1 through 4. I urge then, first of all, that request prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet, lives in all godly, lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Did you hear that? Thanksgiving, intercession, prayers made for everyone. He wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I pick and choose. It's my confession. I'm like Jonah. You know, God, don't, you know... I, those people don't, I don't, I'm not going to pray for them. They deserve what they get, right? And he's saying pray for everyone, made for everyone, all meant to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. Do we pray or do we, do we pray for what God's telling us to pray about, how to pray, or do we kind of make our list and we pick and choose what we want to pray for? Leaders, we have folks in authority over us that we don't particularly care for. Uh, when my tax bill comes, I'm like, God, what, what, you know, what, what are you doing? These are people that the Lord has put over us, and he wants us to pray for them. Do we diligently pray for the leaders of our nation, for our communities? Romans 8, uh, 26, 27, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. This was comforting to me because there, there are times, there are circumstances that we go through. We don't know how to pray. I, you know, Lord, I don't know what to pray for. The Holy Spirit is interceding with wordless groans. 
He knows what we're going through. He knows what's on our heart. Even before we know what to pray for, he is there with us and interceding with us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Be joyful always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Be joyful always. Pray without ceasing. As I just shared with you when I was a kid, I thought there were certain places, certain times that you should pray or could pray and other times that you shouldn't. This is prayer without ceasing. It means your life is a living prayer. When you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, you don't know why you're awake. There's people, there's things, there's circumstances, there's all kinds of things for us to continually be praying for and people uh, to be praying for. The book of Samuel. Samuel was the last judge in the Old Testament because uh, the... Israel wanted the king, right? So Samuel says, all right, you'll get your king, you know? Um, and in chapter 12, he gave basically his farewell speech. And this is what he has to say. Um, in chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, he's, he's, this is, he's giving a speech. He's, he's really exhorting Israel. You know, you, you want a king, you got what you want, and you'll get what you deserve. Kindness, what he's telling them. But he, he also says, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. Let me read that again. As for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. Be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Failing to pray is a sin against the Lord. Praying for people to become saved. Praying for people in positions of authority. Praying for people who we don't like. Praying for people who are against us. Failing to pray for those people is a sin against the Lord. I recently read a Gospel Coalition letter. Um, it was a collection of letters that had been written to pastors. The life of a pastor, and I'm certainly, I can't speak for Ron, I can't speak for pastors or other churches, but it's an immersion, it's not a nine-to-five job. It's a lifestyle. You are integrated, you are serving, you are part of the church, and you're leading and directing and guiding and exhorting people and you are visiting people in times of distress. You're visiting people in all kinds of circumstances. And this group of letters was written to pastors saying, like, you know, you did, I, I really needed you to stop by, and you didn't. And you didn't do this that I wanted. You didn't do that that I wanted. And my family and I decided to seek another church. I can tell you that um, being part of worship teams and other churches, the 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 emails and the notes and the letters that worship leaders get are sometimes quite frankly appalling. I don't like the music. Uh, uh, the song selection was horrible. You know, your sermon didn't do anything for me today. We get all of these things. And I, do we pray for our pastors? Do we pray for our elders? Do we pray for our worship leaders? And I want to put to you that those are people that should be at the top of our list to pray for because their job is extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's not a job. It's their life. Yet when we uh, feel slighted or they didn't quite do what we want, the first thing we do is there's a letter or something that goes to them that um, telling them what they did wrong. How often do we thank them and tell them what they did right and appreciate them for the job, the impossible job they have of leading a flock of people? It's an extraordinary calling. And we appreciate you. 
There's a lot more the Bible says about prayer. In fact, there's a whole sermon that you could talk about in prayer, but uh, I want to talk, uh, continue to move on. Uh, verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. This is, this is an interesting one for me. We want to always point out people's problems or, or shortcomings, don't we? Oh, man, you really ticked me off the other day. And, you know, instead of kind of holding our tongue, um, we, we kind of step in and we, we do all these things. We say all these things. Proverbs 17.9 says, Whoever conceals an offense promotes love, but he who brings it up separates friends. You know, pick your battles. Is it, is it worth being offended? Is it worth bringing up something and destroying a friendship, or is it better to just love that person past it and maintain a relationship? Proverbs 10.12, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all transgressions. James 50, or 50, <laughs> James 5.20, consider this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So what that's saying is there's some things that we don't want to give people a pass on if somebody is sinning, if somebody's living a life that is outside of God's will, that's leading them down a path to destruction. Love says that we call those people into account. We bring them back. Uh, and we save that particular, that person is then saved from death. First uh, Peter uh, one twenty two says, Since you have purified your souls by obedience to the truth, so that you have a genuine love for your brothers, love one another deeply from a pure heart. So, that's, I mean, love people. You know, that, that's what God is saying. Love people. And you love people to Christ. There are people that we don't want to love, but being obedient says we love people and we're going to love them in a way that will draw them close to Christ. Um, Verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Man, they're coming over again. Um, I read this. This, this This is... Nowhere in the Bible, but I read this, this thing that says, when hospitality becomes an art, it loses its soul. Hospitality is about relationship. It's not about, my wife is going to be mad at me for this. It's not about eliminating all the dog hair before people come over. We have two, we have a, two white dogs that are, one's a Great Pyrenees and one's a Great Pyrenees Lab, and they just exude enormous quantities of hair all over our house. And my way of dealing with it with a bachelor was to turn on a ceiling fan and let it blow all, <laughs> and let it blow all the hair to the baseboards and then vacuum it up and be done with it. And I always thought a leaf blower would be a good thing too, but that doesn't fly in my house. <clears throat> anyway, to say, uh, that's to say, God isn't saying your house has to be, you, you don't have to be in a perfect place to have people over. He says just get involved with people, bring people over. Hospitality um, is really about sharing your life. The Greek word um, uh, philonexia, entertain strangers, hospitableness. Uh, the, the Greek root word is phileo, which is brotherly affection, which means bring people in and treat them like family. Uh, uh, Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Hebrews 13.2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing... Uh, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Hospitality is not limited to our homes, but includes our actions and our charity 
towards others. It could be simply uh, buying somebody a meal, uh, sharing life. And when you ask people, and, and I'm guilty of this probably as much as anybody, say, hey, how's it going? Be prepared to listen and respond to the answer. Not just, hey, how's it going? Oh, it's terrible. All right, well, have a great day. You know? We just, it's, it's just kind of, a, it's kind of an informal thing that we do, and we're not really concerned about the person. We're just concerned about the greeting aspect of it. And, and God is saying, be hospitable, be interested, be integrated, engage people, be concerned about their lives, and offer to bring them in and treat them much like you know, the Good Samaritan, uh, you know, perfect strangers. Uh, share your homes, share your resources, share your love, all of these things. Um, Luke 14, 12, uh, 14, uh, Jesus uh, says this to apostles, or not to apostles, he was with uh, having dinner, and he says to his host, when you give a lunch or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. You will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be paid at the resurrection of righteousness. Then he goes on to share the parable um, on the great feast. Each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully, ministering God's grace in its various forms. This is an interesting one because I know there are people that don't think they have any gifts. (laughs) You know, wow, he, he doesn't say, if you have gifts, use them. He says, each one should use whatever gift he has received. We've all received gifts of some sort. Use them to serve others, faithfully administering God's word in its various forms. To me, this is kind of the crux of what the church is. And one of the things I really want people to think about um, is the, the, the church itself. What, where, when, and why. Why do we gather together Sunday morning? Um, why do we forego uh, sleeping in and going to the park or going out to eat and then watching a football or baseball game? Why do we continually gather here with the church and do the things that we do? Romans 12, uh, 4 to 5 says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. We are all connected. We are all important. We are all moving in the same direction. Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So in the New Testament, you know, grace means uh, God's love in action towards men who merited the opposite of love. Grace is God doesn't give us what we deserve. For it is by grace you have been saved. This is Ephesians 2, 8-10. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So the Bible also has a lot to talk to say about speech, right? Uh, A number of years ago, I uh, hosted an evening radio talk show host on KGNW um, in Seattle. 
when I first started doing talk radio, the admonition that I was given was you cannot have dead airtime. The whole concept of talk radio is to have a patter going and to engage people in conversation on topics that would cause them to call in and bring in discussion. For radio, that's what the ratings are all about. People calling in, sponsor, you know, if you've got a good show and it's being well listened to and people are calling in, the advertisers bring money in and everything's great. But you can't have any dead airspace. So I learned this technique of never shutting up. <laughs> oh, I have something to say about everything. Uh, God in his infinite wisdom and humor gave me a wife who is incredibly soft-spoken, quiet, and thoughtful before she speaks. So I, I, I learn a lot from her. But when we speak, you know, something happens, somebody says something, the first thing, these words go out of our mouth. And we're going, like, come back here, you know? So, so God says, if anyone speaks or when someone speaks, the, mat, the, the crux of that is we shouldn't always be speaking, right? So a lot of life is about listening um, to what others have to say and not having to necessarily respond. It's like, mm-hmm, that's it, yeah, great, right? James 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Anybody here fit that description? If you do, we should chat. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boast. This is James 3, 5. James 3, 9 through 10 says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. One of the things uh, um, I just want to talk about, this is kind of distilling out what, what a lot of what James has talked about, and it's really putting a Christian life, kind of a continued admonition of how we um, ought to be living. But one of the things that um, I thought about as I talked through and put all of this together is the church. What, where, when, and why? What is the church? We talked about it a bit. We undervalue what the church is. We put a lot of faith in buildings, in, in material things. On Tuesday, uh, April 16th, of this year, the world awoke into the news that the cathedral, Grand Cathedral of Notre Dame was aflame and burned for 12 hours. At 12.35 in the afternoon, the iconic spire collapsed and imploded in a pall of smoke and flame, and the, the sanctuary continued to burn. At the end of it all, a reporter from CBS News correspondent named Roxana Saberi reported, Notre Dame stands damaged but defiant after the fire that raged for only 12 hours. Inside, where the spire collapsed, the altar was buried in debris, but its cross was almost shining and the pews were still in place. What you could have added and should have added is that Jesus is still on the throne. We put the, impute this personality and these things into material in the world at large that doesn't really believe in what we believe or look at the things the way we do um, looks at the church as a building, a material building, a place. So where do we put our faith and what do we truly worship? Interestingly, 
within days after the fire, over a billion dollars were pledged. And Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, said, we will rebuild it in five years, meaning the cathedral. We know that the church is not that. The church is you and me. Not just here, but as um, Ron's brother-in-law Maurice pointed out at Church in the Park, it is brothers and sisters connected by Jesus Christ all over the world. Um, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, the Uncle Screwtape is writing to Wormwood. And he says, one of our great... So uh, Wormwood has a patient who has just become a Christian, and he's a little bit distraught. We don't want men to become Christians. And so Screwtape says, one of our great allies is the church itself. He says, do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her, meaning the demons. He says, I do not mean the church as we see her spread out throughout all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on a new building estate. So what he's saying is we don't really see the church in all its eternal glory and majesty, and that's how we should look at it. The, the battle, the, the victory is won. We win. Jesus wins. Jesus reigns. We are with him forever and ever. We go back to being controlled, uh, self-controlled and sober-minded, preparing for eternity. I want to share, I know I'm running a little bit late, but I want to share one quick story with you. Um, I have it in here somewhere. And this is about the, the power of one person who lives a Christian life. Has anybody here heard of a woman named Rachel Scott? Rachel Scott was a high school student. On April 20th, 1999, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold in Columbine High School in Colorado um, wrought evil upon the world. Rachel was the first student that they shot and killed as she sat outside the school eating her lunch with a friend. She was a a devout and well-known Christian in that school. The gunmen taunted and mocked her faith in God before they fatally shot her. After her death, Rachel's family discovered five spiritual journals that she had been keeping. As her family reviewed her spiritual journals, the true and deep commitment of her Christian faith uh, came into clear focus. Rachel wrote about her desire to share her faith with all she met, despite the fact she was losing friends at school because of her boldness. She wrote how she would gladly have a million enemies as long as she remained a friend to Jesus Christ. Months before her death, Rachel participated in a school talent show, and before packed auditorium, she performed uh, a, a mime to Ray Boltz's uh, song, Watch the Lamb, which is about the crucifixion of Christ as seen through the eyes of Simon from Cyrene. Throughout the performance, Snipples pierced the silence of the audience, and upon the conclusion of her performance, Rachel received a standing ovation lasting several minutes. In one of her spiritual journals, Rachel wrote of her belief that compassion shared by one could start a chain of reaction that could lead many to Jesus Christ. Driving around town one day, Rachel encountered a young man changing a flat tire in the pouring rain and stopped to hold an umbrella over his head while he changed the tire. After Rachel was killed and her picture was on the television in local newspapers for days, 
Well, I mixed my pages up. Anyway, what I can tell you, um, the young man saw her picture and heard her story on the television and came to her funeral. At the funeral, he heard the gospel. He heard the words of Jesus Christ, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ at Rachel Scott's funeral. And it turned out he was a prominent disc jockey from one of Denver, Colorado's top radio stations. The power of Christ, the power of one person. If you think you don't have gifts, if you think that you're just in a sea of anonymity sitting in a church somewhere, you're not. God has given you a gift. God has given you something to use. And this is a perfect example um, of how we use that to serve others. And if we do that as a church, what power the, the banner of the church that the tempters, the devils see for eternity that we don't because we're kind of caught in the moment. So anyway, um, I'm going to end with that. And would, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful, Lord, for house of worship. We're grateful for leaders, for elders of our church. We're grateful to be in a community that we can praise and worship Jesus freely. We're thankful, Lord, for the written word that is a perfect guide for our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the young kids that just a week ago gave their lives to Jesus Christ. We thank you for the volunteers and all the people that pour into our community, for the people that pour into our church. And we lift them up in prayer, Lord. We are thankful and we lift up our pastor, our elders, and our leaders um, in prayer. And Lord, may you gird them, may you encourage them, and build and strengthen them to continue to lead and guide us um, in the days and weeks ahead. We thank you, Lord, for this time this morning to praise and worship, to gather in the fellowship of Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.